Our Old Testament scripture verses are selected from Genesis chapter 45 through 47. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept out loud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these three years, two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visitations of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through this series on the life of, of Joseph. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the truth that it teaches us. Thank you, Father, for the gospel of Christ Jesus that it proclaims to us. I do pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage, Lord, and that you would apply these truths to our heads and to our hands and to our hearts. And we ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there's, there's a parable about parenting that I recently came across, and it, it goes like this. So there's a farmer, and he's, he's strolling along a path, and it's a path that takes him to another farm with another farmer. And he sees that he's, this, this other farmer is working with his children to build a fence. But the farmer, he, he passing by, he points out, out that because of all of the help that's being given by the children, the work of building the fence is actually going very, very slowly. And so he asks, why are you letting the, your children do this with you? Don't you realize that the work would go much, much quicker if you just did it yourself? And how is it that that farmer responds? He says, no, 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 no. You, you don't understand what I'm doing here. I'm not raising my fence. What I'm doing is raising my children. Because of the work and, and, and often how long it takes, the children are being formed. They're learning these important skills and competencies. If it's just a matter of time and efficiency and getting things done, then yes, absolutely push the kids aside and just do the work by yourself. But the father's main concern is not what's get, what gets done. It's who his children are becoming. And we know this, right? Maybe as parents, we've seen how it's so much easier just to get things done by ourselves. Perhaps, for instance, you encounter this challenge with washing the dishes. If you just wash the dishes by yourself, maybe it would take 20 minutes. But to, to get your kids involved, to have them be part of the process, you know, it can take like five times longer. But if our only concern is getting the job done, then we might do right by the dishes, but we're never going to do right by our children. And if this is true of human parenting... How much more is this true of our Heavenly Father? And in particular, how much more is this true of the Joseph narrative? On the face of it, it seems like this whole narrative is about providing food amidst a famine. But if the main point of the story is the famine, then we're going to find ourselves, we're going to put ourselves in the same position as that first farmer. We're going to read this and we're going to say to God, God, it would be way quicker and easier for everyone to just not have the famine in the first place. Or, or maybe you could just tell people to save up food in a different way, and then we could avoid all this back and forth between Joseph and his brothers and everything that happens in Egypt. And yet, as we read the Joseph narrative, we sense God saying, no, no, you, you misunderstand what's going on here. I'm not primarily raising the food supply during a famine. I'm raising my children, the very people of God. 
If God was primarily worried about time and efficiency and simply getting things done, then the Joseph narrative makes no sense. However, if God walks alongside his people, if God uses the struggles of life in a fallen world to slowly mature his people in ways that they would not themselves have chosen, if all of that is true, then we must not let ourselves be like that first farmer. We are going to be left scratching our heads at the ways and the works of God. Just like the farmer with his children, God's main goal here is raising his children. And so with that in mind, let's look at today's passage under three headings. We have the purpose of this life, we have the limits of this life, and we have the promise of this life. And let's let's look at each of those in turn, starting with the purpose, the purpose of this life. The law of God, which which just is the perfect shape of the human life, is summarized by Jesus by way of two commandments, that we should love God, our Father, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And what this means is that the purpose of this life is to grow into the kind of people who love God and who love neighbor in this way. This is our ultimate goal and good. And this, as scripture tells us, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And no matter what happens in this life, this is God's certain promise for the Christian. God will work all things to this good, this good of being conformed to Christ. And this truth alone can make sense of the Joseph narrative. If if we remember at the beginning of the narrative, we, we preached on this a few weeks ago. Joseph starts as as an arrogant and selfish brother of 17 years old. We even see that he gives what is likely a false report about his brother's behavior. And so Joseph, like, like the children who are working on the fence with their father, Joseph must undergo being raised by his father, specifically his father who is in heaven. And just like building that fence, this will take a long time. And so over the process of 22 years, from the time that Joseph is 17 to the time here in this passage where he's 39, God will work greatly, God will work severely, and yet God will work mercifully in the life of Joseph. And he will do so through many difficult, harrowing circumstances. As we've traced throughout the last few weeks, Joseph will be sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph will be falsely accused and thrown into prison. Joseph will help a royal official of Pharaoh, the cupbearer, and then be forgotten. And through all of these things, God will change Joseph. Joseph will grow. He will mature. And he will become the person that God intends him to be. Trials and challenges are often our very greatest teachers. And when we confront them, we are faced with an either-or choice. Either the trial will make us bigger or smaller. Either it will make us more loving or more spiteful. We cannot stay the same. 
Consider an example that's not dissimilar to Joseph. In his confessions, Augustine tells of an important event that happens to his friend and to his student, Olypius. There, there's an attempted theft, an attempted stealing at a silversmith's shop, but, but while the thief is doing this, he hears voices and he quickly runs out of the shop. And Olypius, he, he sees this man run out and he's curious, what's, what's going on in there? So he goes into the silversmith's shop, but just when he goes in, the guards arrive and they arrest him because they think that he is the thief. Eventually, the real thief is found, but, but all of this plays an important purpose in Olypius' life. Augustine writes this to God when reflecting on this situation. Augustine says, You, Lord, allowed him to be arrested by the temple guards as a thief. And I think that you did so for no other reason than to ensure that this youth, who was destined to be such a great man, should learn even at this early stage that in judicial hearings, one person ought not to be condemned too easily through the rash gullibility of another. Why did this happen? Well, by Augustine's lights, it happened so that Olypius, who, who would soon become an official for the, for the Roman government's judicial system, so that he would see and experience firsthand how innocent people can often be falsely accused. It taught Olypius that he must not rush to conclusions because if he does, the life of an innocent person might be endangered. And only an experience like this could have taught Olypius this lesson with such force. And this trial worked to make Olypius more merciful and more just. But think about it. It could have gone the other way. This trial could have made Olypius worse. He could have come away cynical about the possibility of any real justice in this world. He could have become more cruel and apathetic. He could have thought to himself, you know what, I've suffered injustice, and so who cares if this or that person is wrongly accused, it's really not my problem. And this is the fork in the road amidst any trial. And we see this in high relief again and again in the life of Joseph. Like Olypius, Joseph too is raised to a high rank. He too is falsely accused. But unlike Olypius, Joseph suffers the full penalty for something he didn't even do. And unlike Olypius, Joseph is also betrayed. Again, Joseph is gravely betrayed by his very own brothers. And here in today's passage, Joseph is presented with a choice. In an earlier sermon on the life of, of Joseph, we examined the theme of forgiveness, and we went through what it is and what it isn't. But today, I, I want to present the issue in a much more simple form. What we have here is an either-or choice. Will Joseph embrace his brothers, or will he not? He does, of course. We, we read that, and in fact, in response to Judah offering to take the punishment of Benjamin, we, we, we talked about that in the previous passage, in response to this, Joseph weeps. He then reveals himself to his brothers, and he beckons his brothers to come near him. He tells them not to be afraid or distressed. He tells them that God has orchestrated all that has happened so that life may be preserved amidst a great famine. 
Because Joseph has been placed in Egypt, many hungry people will live and not die. But again, this is not the only or fastest way that God could have done the very good thing of keeping a number of starving people from dying. But this, this is how God chooses to do it. Raising children by raising offense takes time. And so too does raising the people of God by the important work of raising the food supply. Again, Joseph is here presented with a choice. Will he embrace or reject his brothers? Will he forgive and warmly embrace the very brothers who so greatly betrayed him? Or not? These are his brothers. To reject them would be to reject your very closest family members. To reject them would be to leave a gaping relational wound in your life. To reject them would be to have only bitterness and spite, to paper over your hurt and pain. To reject them would be to become smaller, to become harder, to become harsher, to become crueler. And this is not easy. There's no way around it. Joseph is presented with an absolutely monumental task. But he must either embrace or reject. And if he rejects, he will become colder, crueler, more callous. This is the either-or that life so often presents us with. But imagine, imagine what must be true of Joseph if he embraces his brothers. Imagine how big a person like that would be. Imagine how free such a person like that would be of spite and envy and jealousy and pettiness and bitterness. Imagine how humble and understanding and gentle and charitable and patient and firm in virtue such a person would be. In over 22 years, God has crafted Joseph into just such a person. Joseph has become a truly compelling figure. In the book A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Auken, he, he tells the heartbreaking story of, of meeting and marrying the love of his life, a woman named Davy. They eventually become Christians, but Van Auken describes the experience of, of being jealous of the way that his wife Davy loves God. He wishes that he were the one who was receiving that full affection from her. But soon, sadly, tragically, Davy contracts an illness and she dies. Benakin must wrestle through this process with God and, and he is presented with a choice. Either he will draw more deeply into the love of God or he will reject it. As with Joseph, there is no in-between here. There's no staying the same. Either he will grow or he will shrink. And the name of the book, A Severe Mercy, it actually comes from a letter written to Van Auken by his friend C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Lewis writes this while, while Van Auken is grieving. And, and, and to be honest, I'm, I'm surprised that Lewis said this. But at the same time, Lewis is a much, much wiser man than I. And he knew the balm that Van Auken needed. Lewis tells him this as he grieves. 
You have been treated with a severe mercy. And this is a beautiful phrase, a severe mercy. It, it both stings and it soothes the soul. And Vinokin goes on to understand what has happened as a severe mercy. He writes, That death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelmed my life, was yet a severe mercy. A mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. A mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. And these are words that only Van Auken can speak. Only he and God know the sufferings that he has gone through. But he does speak them. And because he speaks them, I repeat them here. This is not a call for us to call death good. It's not to make ourselves people who seek out suffering. This doesn't mean that we grieve and lament deeply the evils and the ills of the world. Just look at the Psalms. No, this is simply the Christian's commitment to echo the wise words of Joseph when they seem so far from our actual experience. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In her book, The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard describes cruelty as a waste of pain. And friends, God is not cruel. God wastes no pain in our life. All of it works. God uses it to form us into what he intends us to be. God is not primarily raising offense. God is not primarily raising the food supply. No, most basically, God is raising his children. And what does this mean for us? Well, I ask this with, with trepidation, but what severe mercies has God brought into your life? It may be the severe mercy of broken relationships as it was with Joseph. It may be the severe mercies of death and sickness as it was with Van Auken. Or it might be something else. Perhaps as a parent, you struggle and struggle with a challenging child. Ask yourself, what would need to be true of me to be the parent that this child needs? By God's grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit, strive, strive to become that parent. Be captivated by that kind of character and maturity that God is calling you to. And I say this with trepidation, not because I want to, but because scripture is compelling me to. Do you see this situation as a severe mercy? Friends, either you will become that parent and grow in amazing ways, or you will shrink Perhaps as a worker, you struggle with what seems an unethical way of doing things at your job. Ask yourself, what would need to be true of me to speak into this situation in the way that I know that I should? By God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, strive to become that worker. Be captivated by that kind of character and maturity. Do you see this as a severe mercy? Friends, either you will become that worker and you will grow in amazing ways or you will shrink as you ignore your conscience and simply go with the flow. There's no in-between. In none of these things can we stay the same. 
Either we will become more what God intends us to be, or we will become less like that. God is raising his children, and this takes time. But it also takes trials. But we have to know that God does all of this so that we would joyfully become what he intends us to be. The purpose of our life is not being comfortable, but being conformed into the image of Christ. And this brings us to our second point, the limits of this life. We learn another important thing about this present life from today's passage. We learn not only its purpose, but also its limits. Joseph, the man who God has made him, he embraces his brothers and he invites his entire family to come down and live with him in Egypt. And they are given the very choicest of the land in Egypt in order to dwell and in order to shepherd. And when they move down, Joseph brings his father Jacob before Pharaoh. And Jacob says this, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Jacob here describes the whole of his life as sojourning. And as we've mentioned before in this series, Scripture frames the whole of the present life as a kind of exile, as a kind of sojourning. In Genesis 3, at the beginning of Scripture, we find ourselves exiled from Eden. And then because of what happens in the Joseph narrative, Genesis will end with a kind of exile of God's people in Egypt. And the Egyptian exile is not all bad, but neither is it all good. God's people there will receive the benefits of of land and food, but they're also going to find themselves at the mercy of Egyptian public opinion, and in time, this will turn against them, as we'll see in the book of Exodus. In Egypt, God's people are not homeless, but neither are they at home. They are sojourning. But again, the sojourning does not simply describe Jacob's time in Egypt, but the whole of his life. For all of his life, for all of our life, we are not homeless, but we are not at home. And Jacob describes his years of sojourning in a very bleak way. Remember, he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And think about it. Consider some of the things that actually happened to Jacob in his life. His father favored his brother Esau over him, the same kind of favoritism that Jacob gave to Joseph over his brothers. Jacob has to flee his home at a very young age because of the murderous rage of Esau, and then Jacob will never see his beloved mother again. He's tricked into a longer servitude and into marrying the wrong woman by his uncle Laban. He watches his wife Rachel die in childbirth. He believes that his son Joseph has been torn apart by animals, and now he is enduring a horrible famine. Yes, Joseph did a lot of bad things, but, or sorry, Jacob, but Jacob also endured a lot of bad things. Jacob's life has not been a comfortable one, and this is true for all of us in some degree or another. We, too, will suffer hard things. We, too, will struggle. We, too, will suffer relational hardships. We will age, and we will lose the looks and the health of youth. We will suffer sicknesses that catch us off guard and change our lives significantly. 
we will never accomplish so many of our expectations and hopes for this life. We, either by, by choice or by necessity, will end our careers, and both we and our very best work will be forgotten. We will watch those whom we love most. We will watch them die, and one day we too will die. Holding on to this life is, is like trying to hold water by cupping your hands. It, it, it doesn't matter how tight you hold your hands, the water drains through. Or consider another analogy. One thing I love about Iowa City is that the landfill and the dump, if, if, if you've been there, it's, it's on a road called Hebel Avenue. Is it people, have you been there? You know? And ironically enough, Hebel is the Hebrew word that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word that is often translated as vanity, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Hebel of Hebels, all is Hebel. And I'm not sure who named Hebel Avenue, but I, but I have to assume that it was a snarky Old Testament professor. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some kind of city planning records we could look into, but, but that's really, that's an amazing coincidence. And so every time I go to the dump, I think about Ecclesiastes, and that seems appropriate. And a few weeks ago, I dropped off a bike there on Hebel Avenue. And I remember buying that very same bike years before. It was shiny and new, and it worked great, and now it's broken. It's, it's, it's irreparable, and it's, it's actually too small for the kid that we bought it for. And this is the way of the things of the world. One day they are shiny and new, and then someday later you take them to Hebel Avenue. But there's more here. There's more both for Jacob, and there's more for the bike as well. That's not the whole story. Again, Jacob is a sojourner. Yes, he's not fully at home, but he's not homeless either. I mean, think about it. Jacob has fellowshiped with the Lord. In this passage, the Lord talks with him, fellowships with him directly. He's received the promise and the covenant of his grandfather Abraham. He's been reconciled to his own brother Esau. He's come to see that his beloved son Joseph is alive. He even sees his own children reconciled here in Egypt. He and his family receive good Egyptian land, and one day he will bless his own children and pass on to them the promise of Christ the Messiah. There is much, much good in this sojourning, much, much good in this present life. And again here, too, the, the kid's bike is not a terrible analogy. The bike worked really great for a few years. It got worn down, it got broken, and the kid for whom it was bought eventually outgrew it, right? The bike was great for what it was, when it was. It was great for a few years of riding for this child at this age for that amount of time. And so, when we think about things like this, the, the hard part is, is balancing the moment when you buy it with the moment that you throw it away. When you buy it, you expect way too much of it. In the case of the bike, as much as I wanted it to, that bike would not single-handedly get my kids off the screen and outside every day. That bike would not make my children eternally grateful to me. That bike would not run forever, even if I took really, 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 really good care of it. It's just a bike. 
And I can't expect it to do things that bikes can't do. But the bike isn't merely trash either. Yes, you'll, you'll eventually have to take it to the dump, vanity of vanities, hebel of hebels, but only after you spent time enjoying the bike for what it was. Again, it was great for this or that thing, for this or that time, nothing more, nothing less. It's neither more than a bike, like you thought it was when you bought it, or less than a bike, like you thought it was when you threw it in the dumpster. It's just a bike. And that's a good thing. It's not everything, and it's not nothing. It's just a bike, and that's a good thing. It's not more or less than that. And this is the dynamic of our life of sojourning. We're not homeless, but neither are we at home. We shouldn't expect either too little or too much from this life. And here's the irony. By avoiding both a naive optimism and a cynical pessimism, we actually enjoy this present life, this time of sojourning, more. If you expect a bike to single-handedly enliven your kid's childhood, then you will continually be disappointed with that bike. The bike can't do that, nor can anything else that we buy. It was never meant to. By expecting too much of the bike, by being naively optimistic about it, you actually enjoy the bike less. And of course, if, if, if you just treat the bike like trash, something that's ever destined, destined for the dump, well, in that case, you're not going to enjoy the bike at all. Cynical pessimism about the bike will keep you from any and all enjoyment of it. We're not homeless, but neither are we at home. In this life, we participate and we partake of the good world that God has created, and we are even blessed to fellowship with God himself. But at the same time, our years are few and evil. And friends, both of these things are true at the same time. And only by holding them together can we avoid the disappointment and misery of expecting too little or too much from this present life. And so let the bike just be a bike. Let your job just be a job. Don't expect it to single-handedly fill your life with purpose and fulfillment. It can't do that, and it was never meant to. A job is a very good thing, but it's not the greatest thing. Only God is. Let your friends and family be your friends and family. They are people you love dearly and rightly so. Scripture calls us to love them as we love ourselves. But no human relationship is meant to fulfill our every longing for companionship. If we expect too much of it, then we'll forever be disappointed with and unfair to the people in our lives. Let your marriage just be a marriage. It is a dearly important relationship, one that even points us to Christ in the church. But it was never meant to give your life nonstop passion and complete relational fullness. If you expect too much of it, you will never actually enjoy your marriage. Let your next meal just be a meal. It wasn't meant to satisfy every appetite and craving you have. Let it be a meal, nothing more and nothing less. Enjoy it, savor it, be grateful for it. But don't rest your hearts and your hopes in it. We are sojourning 
We're not homeless, but we're not at home. And only when we realize this will we let the good things of this life simply be the good things of this life. Only then will we come to truly and appreciate these very good things of this life. And that brings us to our third and final point, the promise, the promise of this life. Let's look back at where we've come so far. We've talked about the purpose, purpose of this life, to shape us into people who love God and neighbor rightly, people who will enjoy and glorify God forever. And this takes a lifetime. What are the limits of this life? Well, again, we are sojourning. We're not homeless, but neither are we at home. We're surrounded by the good gifts of God, but these are gifts that we can really only enjoy when we expect them to do, and we don't expect them to do the things that only God can do. Only God and not any of these things can support the hopes of our heart. But then, what is the promise? What is the promise of this life? We talked earlier about Ecclesiastes and its vanity of vanities, its hebel of hebels. And if this is all that we have to look forward to, that means that what we're looking forward to is a kind of garbage dump. It's important to note that one purpose of Ecclesiastes is to function as a thought experiment. If you read Ecclesiastes again and again and again, you'll find the phrase, under the sun, under the sun. And this means life that is completely limited to, completely carried out within this world, within the things that we can see and taste and touch and smell. And if this is all there is, and if the life ends in the grave, if the grave is all that awaits us, then yes, every day simply brings us closer to death, to meaninglessness, to nothingness. Death is always and only the final word. You will die. And in time, all that you've done will be forgotten, and it will not matter. But this is not what we find in Scripture, and this is not what we find in today's passage. Recall what Joseph makes, sorry, what Jacob makes Joseph promise at the end of his life. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And this movement of his bones is important and symbolic. It reminds God's people that Egypt is not their home. It reminds them that in this present life, they and we will never be fully at home. But then we have to ask, does that mean that death is our true home? Well, no. Death is not the end of our sojourning. Death is not the end of our exile. What we find here is the promise of the resurrection, the true end of exile. And notice something interesting here. If the resurrection has nothing at all to do with this present life and world, then there would be no need to move Joseph's bones, or sorry, Jacob's bones. However, if the resurrection was just like this world, then Jacob's ultimate home would be the grave plot. Which, friends, is no home at all. If that were the case, what else could we say but vanity of vanities, hebel of hebels? No, what this shows us is that the resurrection, our true home, is this world. The world of Jacob's bones, but this world restored and renewed and perfected. 
This world where Jacob's bones and bodies are raised, body is raised back to life, never to die again. And this and this alone is our true end of sojourning. This and this alone is our true home. But if that's true, how do we get there? Well, we have to remember, Scripture tells us that human death is the punishment for the sin that we all bear and commit. This is true for Jacob, and it's true for all of us. So then the question becomes, how can death, this ultimate enforcer of exile, how can death be undone? What's the answer? The answer is Christ. The answer is God the Son become human to live the perfect life of God and neighbor in our place. And then God the Son to become human and to take upon himself the cross, the punishment of death that we alone, not he, deserves. But Christ, Christ does not stay dead. He was raised again, never to die again. And in so doing, Christ defeated death. He inaugurates the death of death. He secures for us the end of exile in Christ's present, his resurrected state. That is our certain future. Christ promises us this true homeland of the resurrection. This is the full stature of what God is raising his children to. This is the true home where the deepest desires of our heart will be fulfilled as we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. This is the promise of our end to sojourning and our great homecoming. And God offers this to us freely and graciously if we place our faith in Jesus. And so, friends, let us rest our hearts and our faith in Christ. Let us look forward to that day not long from now, I promise you. When Christ will return, and he will either rouse us from our daily routine or even from the grievous grave, and he will say to us, Awake, my child, it's time to come home, to come truly and fully home. You have so joined here long enough. Everything is ready, all is prepared. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who secures this great promise of redemption, of reconciliation, of resurrection. May we place our faith in him, and may you grow that faith throughout the whole of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.